1: In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. Twenty years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pearce. Policy Forum Pod is presented by PolicyForum.net and we are based at Crawford School of Public Policy, Asian Pacific's leading graduate policy school. If you're looking to accelerate your career in public policy or or maybe you're looking to make a change, Crawford School offers a range of world-class courses to build your career in public policy. From environmental management to international development to public administration, we've got a world of choice for you and applications for semester two are closing soon. So Jump online now, check out our full suite of graduate, certificate, master's and PhD programmes at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. And we look forward to welcoming you to the school. Now on today's Policy Forum Pod, we are bringing you part two of our recent episode of Ask Policy Forum, the podcast where you ask the questions. Usually it's only for members of our Policy Forum Pod Facebook group, but we figured everyone needs a bit of a laugh in what has been a pretty trying year, so we've released this edition for you all to enjoy. Led by former press gallery journalist, the Australian National University's Professor Mark Kenney, also the host of our Democracy Sausage podcast, we're joined in conversation by Professor Sharon Bessel, Elizabeth Ames, Professor Kim Cuneo and Dr. David Caldercott. It's a great panel and a really great discussion and we think you're going to enjoy it. We'll be back with our regular programming later this week. But for now, it's over to Mark and the panel for part two of Ask Policy Forum. Hope you enjoy it.
2: Now, we have a, have a question here from Uh, shireen lamande i hope that is the correct pronunciation uh and she's talking about universities she says there seems to be a lot of discussion about universities building their business model around international students and that this was a folly in some way couldn't the same criticism she asks be uh, made about the tourism industry which i think it's actually quite a uh, quite a funny point um Given that uh, it's explicitly arranged around the idea of uh, people coming from abroad and, of course, domestic tourists as well. Um, But she's making a point, I suppose, that they are eligible for JobKeeper in a way that university workers aren't. So um, let's look at that question anyway about whether universities have built too much of their business model around uh, this idea of servicing international students and charging them full fees and using that money elsewhere. Sharon Bessel, do you have a, a, a view about that? Is, is is that another one of the um, vanities of our pre-COVID life that has been exposed?
3: I'm not sure it's a, a, it's a vanity, but I guess in some ways, universities looking to international, a market for international students has been driven by necessity um, and has been part of the funding models that have been put in place. I don't think we should see the number of international students coming into um, Australian universities or the fact of international students coming into universities as a negative thing. It's caused a range of of problems that were probably very difficult to anticipate um, in the context of a pandemic. But if we think about what a a university education is meant to be, then international students bring enormous value and depth and wealth to that experience um, of tertiary education. So the fact of having international students as part of the student mix at universities, I think is a really positive thing Um, in terms of being highly dependent on international students and um, students from particular countries, I think is, is in part the business model that universities have not embraced necessarily themselves, but has been um, the, the only pathway forward given the funding models in Australia. And I think one of the things that we might want to think about coming out of this is the value of international students, not just in terms of the funds, but in terms of what they bring to the experience, but also what value we place on higher education in this country and the importance of putting appropriate funding models in place. And certainly, we're not seeing very positive signs of that commitment when academics and universities are being um, cut out of the, the job keeper system. I think associated with this more than the dependence or as much as the dependence on international students that we need to think about is the casualisation of the university workforce and the casualisation of academics. And a lot of the problems that universities are facing and that staff are facing are not just related to the issue of international students no longer coming, but the fact that the workforce has been so casualised that we've essentially created a very highly educated precariat who contribute enormously to the public good but are not valued um, for doing that.
2: That's a, a very interesting point, a great point. And I particularly like that term of a highly educated precariat. I don't like the fact that there is a highly educated precariat. Let me just get that on the record. Uh, but it's a a very, very clever term. David, what's your sense? I mean, the argument really about whether universities have been exposed for their dependence is in a sense one that answers itself. The mm. tap has been turned off and suddenly universities find themselves in all kinds of funding stress. Um, ipso facto, they had too much reliance on one source of income. I mean, that is the sort of, you know, unvarnished truth of the situation. But Of course, these are international businesses. Higher education is the country's fourth largest export. Um, Universities have been uh, earning uh, some considerable funds out of this method. They've been directed to do so by public policy settings from Canberra. Mm. Uh, And and the government's been very happy for the cost of R&D, for example, that is done by universities, the proportion of which is actually greater now than it was a decade ago. The government has been very happy for that cost to be carried by universities configuring themselves in such a way that they would have this money. So can governments just simply w- walk away and say, well, perhaps you, uh, perhaps you need to uh, think about your business model? I mean, they, they're the ones who wanted the business model set up that way.
4: Yeah, I mean, of course they can. Sure, they can, but they're not going to get a product that's going to serve your country particularly well. Um, I completely agree with Sharon. I think, I think it's you know you can't be overly harsh. Uh, nobody saw this coming. Um, you know, you, you wouldn't have decided to become a builder or anything else that would have been desperately affected by COVID um, had you seen it coming. And you know, the university sector was caught out by it. But it does reveal um, the nature of underfunding, chronic underfunding in Australian uh, universities. And um, not just chronic underfunding, systematic and systemic diminution uh, over even just the last decade in what is being done for the tertiary education sector in Australia. Um, I have a declaration of interest, obviously. I, I come from a homozygous Um, Academic uh, family; Um, both my parents are academics, and I've been brought up in this. uh, And where you provide a a tertiary education purely on the basis of its um, profitability, you you don't generate the best academic circumstances for people to um, blossom within the sector. That's just a fact. The Europeans know that very well, and we're seeing this this expansion of separation between the haves and have-nots, not only in internet um, access, but also in third level education access as well. So sure, by all means, make a system whereby the entire university sector is funded by um, uh, foreign students. I I completely agree with Sharon. I think it's great and it's enriching, Um, but be prepared for it to fall over
2: in circumstances such as this. Did anyone else want to add to anything uh, there on that? I mean, what, what's your view? Oh, away you go, Kim Cunha. Yeah, well, I think
5: both Sharon and David have really nailed it. But there, there's a sort of a tone that the government has that you should have seen this coming. Well, of course we should have <laughs> coming. You know, it's been obvious for the last 10 years. I've certainly been part of many forums that have said, what are we going to do when something goes wrong? And for example, in my school, we actually, we actually deliberately divested ourselves from international students over the past six or seven years. We only had five or six. So in terms of our little school in the ANU, we're not touched, but then you look out to the whole ANU and it's, it's absolutely huge and then other universities is huger than that. So we have had this thing, but I think it's it's disingenuous of the government to say that you really haven't seen this coming. We've known what we can do and what we could have done is actually look for a broader range of funding options. If One little example is the ultimate university gig is an Australian Research Council you know, grant. They sound really great, but in order to get them, the universities have to put all this money in just to get the money off the government. So so everything that the government gives, there's a really big string attached. And I think what we need to come to terms with is the fact that not only do we need more money, we need more academic freedom to do our job.
6: Yeah, I'd I'd agree about that being slightly about the sort of disingenuousness of the way in which this is being talked about because for a long time, you know, I worked as as a trade negotiator and Australia has spent a long time boasting about its amazing export of international education. and We've been really happy to take credit for how important that's been as an export and how important it is to the Australian economy. And we all know how important higher education is to the Australian economy, not just in terms of the way it funds universities, but also the secondary jobs that those universities provide to the rest of the community, particularly regional universities. So you think about the takeout shops, the cab drivers, you know, the dry cleaners, everybody who sits off a student ecosystem. And so to then say, well, can't possibly provide additional funding to universities. And and certainly some universities have gone too far. You know, I think it's inarguable that VC salaries are ridiculously overinflated. Um, And I think some universities have probably gone on building sprees that are sort of vanity buildings rather than what's necessary. But in terms of the greater good for the Australian economy, it's a hugely important sector to support. And it's been quite remarkable to me watching from the UK where every single sector and every single worker has been eligible for this furlough pay, to watch the Australian example where specific sectors seem to have been cut out, not because of their importance to the economy, but because of how somebody administering the funding system decides they feel about them. And that's not an equitable way to run um, economic support.
2: Yes. Just staying with that uh, just quickly for a moment, Elizabeth, uh, the... That that point about the the crucial nature of the um, sector to the economy, I mean, obviously, universities employ over 100,000 people directly. Uh, They are the fourth largest export earner for the country. Um, Very, very significant. It seems like an odd thing to do, really, to design a package for getting the country, and we were told it was the bridge to get us to the other side, to design a package which is about keeping the economy as strong as possible through this crisis period and not to include a direct employer which has such an important uh, role in the national economy. And you seem to be saying there that you think there is a, an element of um, perhaps the government saying, well, they're not our people, they're not our voters, or, you know, it's a, it's a way of, um, you know, further the pro- prosecuting a culture war. Is that what you were suggesting?
6: Yeah, I mean, I don't think every individual in the government sort of hates universities. Most of them went to university and, you know, that's a discussion for another day about the fact that politicians all seem to come from a very similar background these days and and that life experience is no longer there in parliament. But it does feel to me as though decisions were taken on a more ideological basis about who was worth supporting or who deserved support rather than an understanding of the role of these organisations and particularly for me it is those regional universities so you think about Geelong you think about Wollongong you think about the importance of these universities you know up in Rockhampton all of these universities that support towns that actually aren't our major capitals and those are the ones that will be most impacting no it's not the University of Sydney and the University of Melbourne that are going to go under it's Regional universities that offer specific courses that have designed them to attract international students that will really suffer in the fallout from this, and I think that should be a worry to the government. They want to make sure that the recovery from this is as broad based as possible and supports as many Australians as possible. And and it's really important to think about those communities.
2: Martin, can I bring you in here? Do you have a, uh, a comment from a uh, listener, viewer, watcher, however they're described? Do it's a kind of related question, and it's from Excellent. Annalise Taylor.
1: And Annalise writes that she has just submitted her thesis. So, first of all, congratulations, Annalise. That's a congratulations. Cute. Well done to you. And she writes, "What impact will the coming exodus of early career researchers on research? Uh, I'm heading back to inju- industry, who wouldn't? And what can be done to make sure we don't lose a generation of researchers?" and more importantly, the arts and humanities as a research area. That's a great question.
2: Uh, who would like to take that uh, first? Kim, would you like to have a crack at that?
5: Yeah, well, I, I feel very strongly about this, obviously, being being in the arts. We seem to be doubly left out, you know, for starters, that we can say the university system has been, you know, maybe it's been targeted. I also have a theory that this generation of politicians, they're a little bit younger It's the first generation who didn't have free access to university when they were young. So if we think back 15, 20 years, we had a generation of politicians who, even if they didn't believe in what the universities did, they saw what the universities were able to do for them. And I think that we now have these politicians who see it as a transactional thing, you know, because so much of modern society is transactional. But being an artist, we've been doubly left out. Like the few of us who who have made, managed to keep our jobs we we feel the pressure of guilt we we have survivor guilt because you know i know a lot of professional musicians a lot of classical musicians and a lot of jazz musicians all the gigs are gone you know yes maybe you can get you can go on the dole but it's not really the ideal thing but if you've got other you know you may not be able to so to get back to what annalise has said i think this is a this is a really huge problem for our society because not only will we potentially lose people to industry, but I think over time we'll potentially lose people to the country, that when things start to pick up and the the internationalisation starts to pick up again, it's inevitable that people will start to look to Europe and other places where we've actually had a very interesting period in universities in Australia because even though there's been all this potential trauma, generally our academics are fairly well paid if you can get a full-time job. So the universities are able to get really, really fine academics from around the world. But now it's payback time, I think, both from the universities themselves. I think it's important to say that many of the larger universities have rainy day funds. And there was an an article in in the Saturday paper about this uh, only yesterday. It is the time to start using some of those, in my opinion. We should be, you know, the universities need to stump up as well as the government. And I think, you know, for example, uh, you know, there's discussion in most universities about furlough schemes. How can we actually spread the, the pain around? so that, that, you know, as much as possible is preserved. It's literally at that level in a lot of the discussions I'm hearing.
2: The journalist in me just went, there's the news hook, you know, leading academic calls for universities to stump up, to, to, to take up some uh, some end of the challenge here. It's not just about governments. Sharon Bessel, um, I assume you would hold similar views to Kim that, you know, you'd like to see. Um, I mean, you're obviously worried, like, like everybody is really about Ah uh, those people, as you used the term before, uh, you know in precarious work, you're concerned about the impact of this, the the um the way it will affect the outlook of people who are just finishing their postgraduate research and who are um, who are now thinking, well, what do I do, do i do I do I cling on to a system that feels unstable or do I go elsewhere?
3: Well, I think that, well, first of all, congratulations to Annalise. that's fantastic that she's just submitted her her thesis. Um, I think for individuals, you know, you can understand people looking for opportunities outside of academia because particularly for early career researchers, um, it is precarious. It's very difficult to um, move into a, a, a permanent position where you're not constantly kind of chasing funding or where you have such incredibly large teaching loads that, you know, it's, you're just constantly on the treadmill and not being able to bring the kind of research-based or the intellectual contribution that you would want to make to your students. But I think um, to pick up on Kim's point about the sort of transactional transactional nature of of education, I think one of the real problems that we've got and one of the mindsets that we really need to shift is the idea that education is all about the individual, whether that's at the university level or whether that's at, at, at a high school or primary school. fundamentally, education is a public good. And I think it's important that we talk about the contribution that the university sector makes to the economy. But we also need to talk about the contribution that the university sector makes um, to to research, to finding cures for things like coronavirus, to bringing beautiful music to people, to better understanding our social world, to understanding our environment. And all of those things have an economic payoff but they also have a deep social payoff. And I think that's something that we really need to start talking about in Australia in ways that we haven't done and we perhaps never have done. But the the only way that we're going to be able to make the university sector what it should be is to actually recognise its value to the economy, but to the society and to the soul of the country.
2: What an excellent thought. I very much Like that idea of the soul of a country and I thought it was fascinating. Someone made the observation, I wish I could remember who it was, but someone made the observation in something I was reading uh, a couple of months ago um, in the whole debate about why it was that the arts and entertainment industry had also been essentially left to fend for itself, as Kim was just making the point about musicians, for example. Someone made the point that a lot of us are staying sane because we're we're spending time at home and we're absorbing all of these fantastic products on Netflix and and various other streaming services where do we think all that came from that is the arts and it is such a crucial part music literature um the the the, the fantastic series that we are now able to watch that that take us into all kinds of different dimensions of our imagination and that is the arts and these people many of these people have just been who live with permanent precariousness anyway or permanent temporariness have just been essentially left to fall off the cliff um and uh, it's it's been quite surprising there is talk now about the government stumping up a fund in that regard uh to um help major events but uh, there've been many people who for a long time now in this sector have been doing it uh you know extremely extremely tough as the saying goes David Calder, any uh, any quick thoughts before we move on? Look, I think
4: all the panelists have touched on um, this the nature of the soul of the nation. The, the um, there was a uh, an old uh, piece that I recall reading um, the idea of a university by Cardinal Newman about the importance of a university far more important than what it can provide in terms of dollars and in terms of you know investments and outcomes. Uh, the Irish have had a, a, a great love of the nature of the university and is one, of, uh, is one of the countries in Europe that has the greatest number of people going through university. And as Kim said, you'll just see, if you do not provide the opportunities, particularly for the arts, you'll just see people who have gone through that moving elsewhere. You'll see a brain drain out of Australia to places where they might feel that they have got a, a, a better opportunity. Um, so you're in a position in this country to make an investment, to change the very nature of the country right now, uh, or one way or the other, uh, for the better or for the worst.
2: Yes, and it's all very much exposed at these times, as so many things are.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby.
2: Let's move on. I mean, when I say move on, let me segue from a term that Kim Cunio used a moment ago about survivor guilt. We have a question from Marissa Lemar, um, UK versus Australia response. It's, uh, it's um, subtitled. Are we seeing a kind of survivor bias is how we analyse Scott Morrison's performance uh, during, the, during the crisis. Similar choices were made on similar dates in both the UK and Australia some of which now reflect badly on UK governance. Meanwhile, Australia is looked to as an exemplar as we have not been as badly hit. Now, Elizabeth Ames, this seems like a question perfectly tailored to you. You understand uh, the situation in both countries. Um, Is it fair to say that Australia did nearly everything right and the UK did nearly everything wrong?
6: I mean, I think it's a little bit easy, I would say whilst decisions were taken sometimes on similar dates, the two countries are at very different stages of the pandemic, so it's not the calendar date, it's actually the stage of the pandemic where the decision is important and we know for something that has this exponential growth that if you manage to do it on the day where you have 100 cases, it makes an enormous difference as opposed to the day where you have 1,000 cases. And, And the thing that Australia did very early and did well early was implementing... The border controls. So stopping the flights from China right at the start of February and then implementing border controls for Italy and other places that were obviously sources of infection in early and mid March. I think the one place we probably didn't pick up on soon enough was the US. I know a lot of those early cases in Australia actually if you look at the genetic sequencing of the virus came out of the US and there was probably a bit of bias towards thinking, oh the US is very developed like us, it has, you know, a, a world class healthcare system when you can access it. Um so I would say it for the US joke, probably- by the way. Exactly. I think where where we, um, where we Australia didn't perform as well, the federal system, and, and you've talked about this in your podcast a couple of times, Mark, the, the federal system actually did pick up the slack. And so where you had a central government that wasn't willing to move fast enough, you actually had state governments pushing ahead and making those decisions. And the UK has a pretty messed up um, political system in terms of its federation, in terms of the way that you know, Scotland and, and Northern Ireland and Wales have their own independent parliaments, but they don't have the same sort of importance that the states have in the Australian system. They're not able to exert the same amount of pressure on the central system. And certainly at the beginning where Boris Johnson was still riding high from his election victory and everyone trusted him, um, they weren't able to push where they thought that that things should be locked down earlier. So I think that there is certainly Australia sort of was a bit lucky Uh, It didn't have as much exposure to the virus as early and, you know, it was able to take decisions probably slightly later than it should have. But the UK was, you know, it now looks like the virus was circulating quite widely in the UK, even from January. And so the fact that they allowed flights in from, from Spain and from Italy right up and through the lockdown in in late march was certainly something that that impacted here so yes australia has done incredibly well but i think that they took the right decisions and they took them early enough and it's not a calendar take
4: yeah i think uh, elizabeth is spot on with regards to the impact of Uh, the states and territories being able to take individual action. Um, If you cast your mind back to mid-March, I think, Mark, you and I were having a conversation about where this could go if we didn't do something damn fast. And it was looking horrendous. Um, I think, you know, as an outsider looking in, there is an effort, um, and it's working in the polls, uh, to rehabilitate uh, our Prime Minister as the grand saviour here. Um, and I think he's probably guilty of riding a little bit on the successes of some of the larger states and the measures that they took. Um, the the week before, we started to see some meaningful lockdowns. We were still being exhorted to go to the footy. Um, we managed to park a whole bunch of plague ships in uh, Sydney. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of dumb stuff that happened that, you know, appear to be at the doorstep uh, of federation and had to be handled by the states and territories. So I'm not sure that the credit that he's receiving, um, he began to act well and fast, but had to be persuaded quite hard, because I think he saw the writing of the wall of what would happen if he didn't.
2: That's quite a, uh, an interesting um, comparison. And I think uh, it, it, those both those points are really um, very germane points. Uh, the issue about when uh, you act uh, in the in the uh, progress of the illness rather than on that calendar date, and the progress of the pandemic rather than the calendar date is a critical one. And also, uh, yes, it is true to say that um, Scott Morrison benefited from the, uh, the the political purpose and will of some of those state premiers, who all were very conscious of the fact that they ran their state health systems, they ran their you know, the police and their education system. So all those discussions they had and the decisions they made about shutting down services and managing all of that um, did have a lot of energy at the sort of, um, at the ground level. Um, Mm. But it's also fascinating, uh, Sophia Gaston, who we've had on uh, this uh, pod, or at least on Democracy Sausage before, um, who's from the British Foreign Policy Group, she's also made a point about... um, just the sort of amount of space we have in Australia compared to the amount of space that people have in the UK and in other places, uh, but particularly in London. Um, and, you know, she knows this. You know, uh, she, she's uh, making, I think, a valid observation there. It sounds a bit trite, uh, but I think it is It is. It is the case. I mean, you only have to get on the tube uh, in London to see how closely packed in people are. And, of course, you know, medium and high-density housing is much more the norm. And is the the case in Australia. So these are are interesting factors as well. Uh, but it's also you know let's let's be honest. Australia has been um, it has been lucky, and it has also made some good decisions. It's got away with some of the bad decisions and made some good yep. decisions. And Scott Morrison, to be fair to him, um, I think because he performed so poorly out of the bushfires, he had a real life, mm. real time example of how quickly he could lose his job how quickly things could go sideways. And so the juxtaposition of the bushfire crisis and then this crisis so quickly, I think uh, probably gave him a sense of what he needed to do and there was a very happy alignment of two things here. My mm. need to survive as Prime Minister just happens to be aligned with what the nation needs at the moment, which is a bit of leadership. It's mm. the only way out for me and um, I have a feeling that that's... That, you know that did also impact on the way Scott Morrison behaved. I'm not as critical as as others um, about uh, about his leadership through this. I think there are. I mean, the, the point about suggesting we should go to the football that weekend. I think. I mean, that was plainly cockamamie, and and it was dumb even at the time. You could see it mm-hmm. in real time. I'm not just using hindsight here. I mean, they were about. To, they were announcing that as of Monday, we're going to have a, a prohibition on you know, the congregation of more than 500 people at any place. But in the meantime, you can go to the footy and I'm going and you should go too if you're, if you're feeling well. It was, it, you know, it was silly. So there have been some mistakes and, of course, the Ruby Princess and and, uh, and and Elizabeth Ames makes an excellent point, I think, about the US. It was for a long time the two major sources of the infection were the Ruby Princess and the United States. Uh, and we had we let that go on for a considerable amount of time. So we got away with a few things, um, but we eventually also had, I think, a system of governance, governments and governance that actually that actually did work. Uh, any Anything to throw in there, Martin? Maybe if I unmute <laughs> my mic first, that
1: might help. But we've <laughs> actually got a, a question from Mark Zanko, who's a, a long-time listener of the pod. So hello, Mark. Great to have you here. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. He's taken us off in a slightly different direction, but I think it's one, Mark, that you might be interested in touching on. He's got a question around where we go now with media policy. He makes the point that the last couple of weeks have seen the collapse of the community newspapers in both the Murdoch and the Catalano stables. Uh, The ABC and SBS are under serious threat from budget reductions. So are these things that we should be worried about?
2: And if so, what can we do about it? Well, I'm very happy to, uh, you know, to kick it off, but uh, feel free, anyone, to come in after me. I mean, you know, I'm not going to say anything It's all that surprising. It is a, a, a genuine concern. All democracies need to have a, a, a robust free press, if I can put it in that old terminology. It is absolutely critical. And uh, we, you know, I was just saying that you can be quite positive about, you can be reasonably positive about some aspects of Scott Morrison's performance as Prime Minister through this COVID crisis, but his government has a record of no one being accountable for key errors and key, uh, you know, program stuff-ups. There have been a whole series of them, whether it be Angus Taylor, whether it be sports rorts, uh, whether it be robo debt, and a number of others, and no one's ever at fault. Now, these things only come to light by and large from having a robust press, and they only get uh, they only get prosecuted if you have that. That is critical to the way democracies work, and we will lose that with you know with people um, uh, being relaxed about the the closing of this masthead here or that radio station or that network there and then suddenly we will realize that we have lost a critical element of our of our democracy which is accountability and um, the uh, Mark Zanker asks that makes the point about um, you know, a number of these smaller regional and local newspapers closing. These are the uh, the parts of the media that hold local officials to to account. They are the ones that know what's going on in in council chambers and in local courtrooms, and who can keep the community informed. They are a glue of their community, but they're also a a safeguard for the community against creeping corruption, against new normals that will that will come to pass of officials taking liberties because there's no one watching them. I mean, that old old saying, you know, truly moral behaviour is the behaviour you do when you think no one's watching. Well, the media do the watching and they do it on behalf of uh, of people. So it is a great concern. I don't know, I don't expect to see this government doing much about it, uh, but uh, I think a government that's truly interested in the functioning of our democracy would have to swallow uh, swallow hard and actually recognise that uh, it is critical to make some changes here. Uh, and, it, and if that involves putting some money into keeping some of these regional media in particular afloat, then I think they should consider it.
6: Do you think there's something to be said as well about our own behaviour? I think we have all become very used over the last 10 or 15 years to all of our news being free. You can get online, you can read anything you want to, you can have that access. And you used to have to pay for newspapers. You know, I was watching um, a a historical documentary here in the UK and the Evening Standard is a paper that you get for free when you get on the tube when that's allowed. Um, But... In, in the documentary, the guy paid for his evening standard and I was sort of shocked. I said, oh, but I thought it was a free newspaper and it was pointed out to me that, no, you used to pay for your evening standard and you read it on the tube on the way home and it's only in the last 10 years that it's become a free newspaper based on advertising support. And so it is incumbent on us as well if we value a free media, if we think it's important that people are able to tell stories and, and to get that news that we as individuals pay for subscriptions. We pay for access to the news that we read the most. And there was a really interesting story here in the UK, and it kind of links back to this idea of universities and the value of storytelling in the arts. There's a little parish uh, in rural England where they've just advertised for a regional journalist. They're going to pay them £20,000 a year, which isn't a lot of money, but it's actually, I think, above minimum wage in the UK. And that person will be employed by the parish to tell the stories of the people in that village to themselves. So we need to put importance on the value of storytelling, the importance on connection, particularly where you can't get together as a community. And I think it's amazing to see this local community value their own stories and value their own storytelling to that extent. So it's definitely government policy has has something to do with it. And certainly supporting um, regional newspapers is really critical and supporting a sort of well-funded ABC that's able to get news out that's reliable and, and trusted to Australians. And, you know, I I was a big supporter of, of the ABC's programming in, in the Asia Pacific as well as an important part of you know tool of soft soft power and diplomacy abroad. And BBC World Service does that, does an incredible job for the UK in that. But individuals need to pay for the news they consume. We also need to value the stories that that we tell. So it's not just about accountability, it's also about that connection and community.
2: I think it's a really excellent point to make that you make there Elizabeth about uh, being prepared to pay for it as well because I know as a, a journalist for a long time that um uh, you would uh, not infrequently have people say to you on on Twitter when you uh, would tweet a particular thing uh, either i'd written or, or or one of my colleagues had written that I was looking to you know put out there and uh, have people coming back to me um saying, uh, it 's behind a paywall uh you know I, I, you know don't don 't bother showing it to us why, why can 't we see it you know, and getting angry in some cases, and like I, I, that was my job right i mean had, had that, I got paid by someone as a journalist to to write stories to, you know to chase up information and write stories. that was the economics of it, and there were some people who were angrily demanding that uh, that, that they have access to it for free um and thinking, well, uh, you know, you can get paid somewhere else. I mean, it, it's it's sort of bizarre, but understandable, I suppose, when there is so much free information flowing around.
4: Mark, what do you think of the the policy impact of the increased elec- the the proposed increased electronic scrutiny uh, on Australians? Will be for the media? Um, you know, we've seen some pretty egregious behaviour in the last year. So particularly with, say, for example, um, Ms Smethurst uh, and her interactions with the AFP, do you think this is a policy area that might be looked at again um, to boost confidence in media, to boost enthusiasm of media outlets to get involved in Australia?
2: Well, look, I'm not particularly confident in that area. I think the government's been uh, dragged kicking and screaming to um, to kind of soften its position. We've had, um, you know, had a fair amount of kind of... um, talking out the side of the mouth and, and crab walking and so forth, uh, uh, you know, changes so that the Attorney-General would need to be involved uh, uh, in order to approve a warrant and these kinds of things. But really, uh, the fundamentals of it, the fundamental relationship is that people who have power uh, do not give up that power easily. They generally seek to use it to build more power. It has been the nature of uh, hu- human organisation and government through history. and mm-hmm. Uh, In sophisticated democracies, a free press should be there to, uh, in a frank and fearless way, to hold all of that to account. And uh, I I think that the idea that governments are going to um, start, you know, paring back some of these controls is, well, certainly from this government, I think it's unlikely. Uh, I think, you know, national security is always used as um, as this cover for a range of things. Funnily enough, uh, we watched last night The Post, you know, the the, uh, the great film about uh, Daniel Ellsberg's uh, Pentagon Papers and, uh, you know, that critical moment when uh, both The Washington Post and The New York Times were, you know, getting hold of the, this information and they were under enormous pressure from the Nixon administration. When I say enormous pressure, I mean direct legal pressure, you know, the matter was going to, to the Supreme Court. And um, it was, uh, you know, it was just obvious, and it 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 feels like that same dynamic rings true today. Governments mm. will move whatever they can in order to protect uh, themselves in situations where their behaviour, which is unpopular, is being exposed. Mm. It's like it's like a fundamental relationship, and that's why I say, if people aren't upset about the uh, the the erosion. Of media, uh, it's because they don't understand where it leads. Where it leads is a lot worse than um, you know than having a few uppity journalists and and uh, and a bit of discomfort for a few politicians. Yeah, yeah. Sharon, no, did you want to make a point? Oh, sorry, Kim, you go, you go ahead. Yeah,
5: I just wanted to to make that point that we're we're so lucky not to be run by a strong man. We can say many things about ScoMo, but he's not a strong man. So if we think of Ulban and we think of Trump and we think of Putin, we think of places where things can be changed very, very quickly. And, you know, one of our great safeguards is the media. And I also think that the, the arts and the humanities are also safeguards. And I would hope that, you know, there's people on all sides of politics who believe very strongly in, in the media and the future of the media and I think this is a pivotal time where some people who have a bit of money saved up themselves for a rainy day need to do more than even pay for it. They need to fund it. And I think we need to look for collaborative funding models. If we can crowdsource someone making an album, I think we can potentially crowdsource a newspaper over time. So I think that we, as, as a society, need to think about this of of mutualism, you know, if we think about how the NRMA was founded. So are there mutual newspapers or mutual ways of thinking about journalism into our future? And this would be a really good debate to have.
2: Yeah, that's a good point to make, Kim. I mean, uh, it, it's in- interesting. There are um, obviously now players in the media landscape who are doing, you know, really good quality work uh, and they are relying to some extent, at least part, you know, they've got mixed funding models, but to uh, some extent uh, they're, they're relying on um donations from from readers uh it's a form of i guess what you call ongoing uh crowdfunding or at least partial funding and i'm thinking obviously the conversations doing that a bit the guardian makes regular requests for money uh inside story uh these sorts of uh organs are doing so but in a sense they're clinging on they're, they're you know they're, they're marginal operations and the, the truth of the matter is the media uh in this country and in most developed democracies is still functioning to an extent because of legacy the legacy of investments past. Um, you know, and wh- what we really need to see is new investment on a on a very large scale, although you can you can, you know, the, the instant response will be, well, how how do you make a, a quid from it? How do you make it economic? But the only thing that's going to really turn this around is new investment on primary news gathering, on having journalists based in the press gallery here or based in, in Westminster, based in, in, in the Washington press gallery, uh, who are holding governments to account, who are competing with each other in a, you know, a, a fairly robust competition to get that vital piece of information. And uh, it's, uh, it's something I've been part of and seen up close and I, know, I just know how valuable it is. Uh, but it's um, it's getting more and more marginal all the time, and we've seen we've seen that with you know the death of wire services and and just the shedding of jobs right across the industry. It's it's very disturbing. Um, unless anyone had uh, anything they wanted to add in there, I thought I would. Um, we're getting close to a sort of wrap up time. There's a number of questions we haven't got to tonight, and I apologise for that. However, I do have one last one that I'm going to ask you. It's a little bit like you know what's your, your your sort of weirdest sort of COVID lockdown habit. This is from Charlotte Gray, and it's what's been your favourite COVID snack through this period. Now I know we've been dealing with some pretty lightweight matters. This is serious, right? Mm. Um, who'd like to start? Soup, homemade <laughs> soup.
5: Soup.
4: Yep, yeah, um, I've got back into soup making. And uh, I've got reams of chicken stock, and big earthy bastard soups with chorizo and paprika and pumpkin and cumin and that sort of thing. I'm refining my soup game.
2: That sounds pretty good. That's a mm. pretty good answer. Yeah, mm. and this is the weather for it. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a lot
6: more sophisticated than than mine, David. I have. I'm sure you'll be familiar with these. I've recently been introduced to a snack in the UK called a frazzle. Which is,
2: yeah,
6: yeah, it's effectively a sort of extruded corn snack that is pretending Mm. to be strips of bacon. Mm. Uh, As far as I can tell, it's mostly salt and MSG. um, And I've become seriously addicted to them.
4: You look so healthy. (laughs) You look so healthy on a diet of them.
6: (laughs) I have to nominate nominate the frazzle as my uh, lockdown snack of choice.
2: The frazzle. I'm I'm feeling a little frazzled at the moment. Actually, I'm not. that's only because I'm waiting uh, with bated breath to hear what Sharon Bessel's answer is.
3: Uh, lamingtons. So I'm mm-hmm. I, I, like David. I haven't been making my own. We have a little bakery just down the road from our house and it stayed open through all of this. So we started going every day to the bakery just to make sure we were you know, supporting this bakery that we all love and I'd never had their lamingtons before and they make the best lamington I have ever tasted and it's become a sad addiction that I'm going to have to pay for, I think, once we come out of lockdown.
4: What is this bakery? Who is this bakery?
3: This is the local bakery in Corwell in Tuggeronk. the little, little bakery at Corwell Shops. Fabulous lamingtons. Worth the trip south. Yeah.
2: I'm, I think I might head down there straight away. It sounds pretty good. Although I haven't been eating, uh, I, for some reason, I, I'm not even entirely sure why, but I decided to give up eating Extra sugar, right? So I just thought I'll have a, um, I'll have a, a, a sort of a diet change where I won't, you know, eat chocolate and biscuits and these kinds of things. I haven't mm-hmm. cut sugar out in the way that some people do by not having bread and, and that sort of stuff. But I have kind of fallen back in love because I, like many people in the, um, in the COVID lockdown period, my work desk is only, well, glancing to my right here, it's only about two meters. To my kitchen bench because I'm working essentially from the dining table and I have fallen back in love with the humble sandwich you know I've been able to nick across to the to the local uh, bakery quite uh, quite easily from my house so fresh bread fresh tomatoes I'm a big tomato guy right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, you know good cheese and, uh, and you know some greens and so forth and I've been really eating much more of that than uh, than I used to and uh, I know that's a bit wholesome, but there it is. Kim mm. you're not getting out of this, you know. Well, you know,
5: there's two in our family. One is, you know, we did a little bit of food hoarding, so the snack is getting rid of the hoarding. We went to the Indian shop and bought 80 frozen chapatis. <laughs> and, so, and they are fantastic. So there's a lot of actually just defrosting the chapati and putting it on the chapati griddle, and they are incredible. So there's actually a lot of Indian food going on, and instead of having to cook rice now, we just, you know, how many chapatis do you want? There's still about 20 left, you know, this far into the lockdown. And, and the other one is my wife, Heather, has become superb at baking potatoes in like everything from like big ones to medium ones to small ones, the ones that look like French fries, you know, the this, oil, this oil or that oil. And we're just starting to actually get, you know, climatized to these micro changes in potatoes.
2: Yeah, that's mm. interesting. It's interesting. Mm. Look, I, I shouldn't do this, but Craig Woods has a question too, and we could just be quick on this one as well. Uh, he's asked what what's one new thing you've learned about yourself during the lockdown? Now, for me, I would say um, being you know in, in an effort of full disclosure, I would say that my hourly productivity is probably not as high as it is normally, but I work more hours. I, mean, I because I have the, the you know the laptop set up at the dining room table, I've I've worked out that I just do a lot of work overall but um, perhaps um not in not in the sort of same way that I would when I'm going into the office you know where you get there and you essentially work I mean you have the odd conversation and so forth and you nick out for a cup of tea and that but you essentially work I I have you know I'll take I'll take Vincent the little puppy across the road for a little bit of a walk here and there and these sorts of things but then I'll still be you know I'll finish making dinner and I'll sit down and I'll do a bit more work and and you know I work longer so i guess i've learned that i that if if it's left up to me i'll just you know kind of work just seems to fill out the available space no, i think you know, i mean it's
6: not a it's not a um not necessarily thing about myself i realized how dependent i am or how much i'd taken for granted the international um connectivity so mm. my parents were meant to visit Three or four times this year for various conferences and trips, and all of those have been cancelled. They haven't cancelled their Christmas flights yet, so I retain a shred of hope that that travel might be possible at Christmas time. Um, but I think for a lot of us who are expats, we have suddenly realised how much we had taken those easy air links for for granted, um, and so that's been it's been something I've been considering, and something that I know a lot of people, a lot of Australians living over here, have been considering: is well, at what point do you? Except that you won't go home as frequently. You know, my grandparents migrated to Australia in 1965. They, my grandfather, never came back to the UK. He never visited again. Uh, my grandmother made it back once. So, it's a changing the way you think about living away from your family.
2: Do you think uh, I, I'm sort of hijacking this question a bit, Elizabeth? But do you think that for people who, uh, for expats, this crisis, you know, this, this lockdown and the inability to to travel for for people. Has it intensified your relationship or in some way changed the character of your relationship with your own country?
6: Yeah, I would I would definitely say it has. I mean, part of the joy of everyone being at home has been I've actually been able to video uh, call my family much more often. You know, I read stories to my nephew once a week uh, in Melbourne Um He tends to not engage that much. He sort of runs away and plays with his trucks, but I persevere. Um, So, but I also, I wonder, you know, we were talking about the risk of a brain drain out of Australia of, of early career researchers, but I actually wonder whether some of us who have been living overseas, you know, I've been overseas for nearly a decade now, will move back after all of this. I wonder whether... There will be a move of um, Australians who've made careers overseas who've decided that actually they want to value something else. They want to be closer to their family. Mm. Um, and so I retain some hope, actually, that, that the brain train that's been spoken about for a long time in terms of Australia will reverse. And you'll see Australians with amazing experiences and amazing connections and networks overseas moving back and hopefully using some of those skills to help Australia recover.
2: It's an interesting point. Look, I might end it there because we've uh, been going for some time now and I want to uh, thank you all for for being. Thanks to all our panellists for giving up part of your weekend to join us today. A big thanks also goes to our audience, not only for being part of our recording today but also for your ongoing support for our podcast. Lots of time and effort goes into putting everything together but knowing you guys are really behind us and enjoying the pod makes a huge difference and keeps us working hard at it. Don't forget to keep your eyes out for our new episodes of, of various podcasts from Policy Forum Pod, the National Security Podcast, and Democracy Sausage. Um, that's all from us here tonight, uh, and we'll catch you again. I hope that uh, we haven't left too many people disappointed for questions not asked or answered, many not asked, and even more not answered, perhaps. But. uh Let's hope that it's been entertaining and informative. And can I thank you all once again for being part of it? It's been really terrific fun. Thank
6: Thanks. you.
2: Thanks, everyone.
1: Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.
5: Bye.
1: Listeners, thanks so much for joining us for this special two-part edition. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, don't forget to reach out. We're on Twitter as Apps Policy Forum. That's A-P-P-S Policy Forum. You can send us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. And you can also find us on Facebook under Policy Forum Pod, where you can join the pod squad to discuss new episodes and get first access to the next Ask Policy Forum episode. We'll be back with our regular pod later this week. But for now, stay happy, stay safe, look after yourselves and each other. And cheerio for now. Hold
0: up.